just went down this huge rabbit hole and spent about an entire winter break of my sophomore year um, just working on like teaching myself the basics of this problem um, coming up with like the basics of the computer algorithm that I was going to use and just sort of spun out from that. Welcome back to The Founder's Couch, a talk show about the most inspiring student founders and their intrepid journeys of starting their own thing. I'm your host, Catherine Jane. It's been a while since our last episode in January, and since then, the world has changed a lot. Now, you might have questions. Why are you still doing this? Well, starting a company has its highs and lows. It's a difficult journey, and being a student on top of that, taking four or five classes makes things more challenging. I've personally gone through that myself. For the past few months, I've been working on a construction software startup with three other Stanford buddies, and let me tell you, I've learned quite a few lessons. And I'm sure other student founders can say the same. What makes things even more tough is what we're all facing right now, COVID-19. School has moved online, shelter-in-place orders have been instated, whole industries have been disrupted. Many teams, like my own, are now remote. How are student founders navigating these challenges, and what have they learned in the process? In these next episodes, I'll be exploring the journeys of these student founders from the time they began all the way to now during COVID-19. I'll be getting a more diverse set of perspectives from student founders all across the U.S., from not just Stanford and MIT, but also schools like Harvard and Penn, just to name a few. But for this episode, I'm going to start at my soon-to-be alma mater, Stanford, with Amber Yang. Amber is a junior studying physics and computer science who hails from Orlando, Florida. She's the founder and CEO of Seer Tracking. So far, the company has been working on creating a machine learning-based software capable of predicting space debris orbits for satellite collision avoidance, and has been working on a pilot version with several satellite launch companies. Seer tracking isn't the typical enterprise startup you think of. For Amber, it all started back when she was just a sophomore in high school. She had watched Scott Kelly talk about the dangers of space debris during his year in space mission, and was inspired to work on that as her research project for the Intel International Science and Engineering Fair. She ended up winning the Intel Foundation Young Scientist Award, and later on that year, she was named to the Forbes 30 Under 30 list. That was the initial spark that ultimately pushed Amber to turn it into a real company. Before I get Amber on the couch, I wanted to give a quick shout out to another cool podcast. Entrepreneurship and Ethics is a special Stanford Innovation Lab miniseries hosted by Professor Tom Byers, where he challenges technologists, investors, and educators to foster responsible entrepreneurship. Guests include Erica Chung, Theranos Whistleblower, and venture capitalist Anne Mirako, who has been called the most powerful woman in startups by Forbes. Subscribe to Stanford Innovation Lab wherever you get your podcasts. Now onto the show. I can't wait to dive into how Amber came to found Seer Tracking, the lessons she's learned along the way, and how she's navigating COVID-19. So let's get her on the couch. Hey, Amber, how's it going? It's going well. Thanks for having me, Catherine. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on the show. First things first, how are you? I'm good, considering the circumstances. I've um, been keeping myself really busy. Can't complain much. Yeah, no, I totally feel. Um, are you quarantining back at home in Arizona? Yes, I am back at home living with my parents. That's nice. So right now you're quarantining in Arizona, but you're not originally from there. You said you're from Orlando, right? Mm-hmm. So what was that like growing up there? Yeah, um, I actually was born in Atlanta, Georgia, and I moved to Orlando when I was around five um, and pretty much like picked up like 
and left all of my friends that I had growing up since I was like a little small child. Um, and then I lived in Orlando all the way up until I finished high school. And then my parents moved to Arizona. Um, I'd say growing up in Orlando definitely gave me a lot of unique experiences that I think really shaped who I am today. I think I grew up in a very, um, it, it was it was like a very classic suburbia neighborhood where like a lot of people thought the same way. There wasn't too much diversity, not too much diversity of race either. And it seemed like a lot of the people that I knew in school were just like planning to stay in Florida um, for like their considerable future. So it was a sort of like insular environment actually that I think really shaped my drive to like want to get out of Florida um yeah, interesting really a lot of my motivation when I was growing up yeah I know that makes sense yeah I feel like a, a lot of kids before Stanford like have this sort of like hometown experience and like a lot of them want to get out of there and like kind of create a new world for themselves so that's pretty cool to hear um so I've already given listeners sort of a rundown of what Seer Tracker does but if you in your own words could describe what your company does yeah, so Seer Tracking is working on creating a machine learning based algorithm that is capable of tracking and predicting future locations of space debris and ultimately selling that data to satellite and space launch companies so that they can use the services for collision avoidance purposes and to better predict how to launch and orbit their um, satellites to avoid collisions. You know, this topic is definitely, I feel like space debris tracking is not something that you first think of when you think of like general entrepreneurs. Um, so how did you first get into this space? Yeah, so it started out actually as a high school science fair project. And I initially got the motivation for it when I was watching Scott Kelly give his like talks when he was in the year in space in the International Space Station. And in one of his episodes, he talked about how he had to duck into a separate capsule because the International Space Station was at risk of being hit by space junk. And then he started talking about the problem and said that it's very difficult to predict um, accurate trajectories for satellites right now because it's like so volatile to external environments. And so, I got the idea from that and started doing a lot of research, talking to people that I knew. Um, growing up in Orlando, I lived really close to the Kennedy Space Center, so um, got a lot of motivation because I would visit there a lot. And um, just went down this huge rabbit hole and spent about an entire winter break of my sophomore year um, just working on like teaching myself the basics of this problem, um, coming up with like the basics of the computer algorithm that I was going to use and just sort of spun out from that. Wow, that's so crazy. I feel like a lot of sophomores definitely aren't doing what you did um, at the time. So that's incredible. Yeah, so this was sophomore year. You had gotten inspired um, by looking at this TV clip and then doing your personal research. Did you reach out to any sort of professors at the time or was this more of a solo project just yourself? Yeah. I didn't have a formal advisor for the project and I didn't work in a lab, which is typically thought of when people do like high school research projects. Mm -hmm. But I did have like a few people at like the local university um, that I would reach out to occasionally for advice, but mostly it was an independent project. That's incredible. I have to say when I did um, science fair projects in high school, it was definitely like through a summer research fellowship. So it's it's really cool to hear that this was more of an independent thing and it 
and like you would reach out when you you needed it instead of it starting there. You mentioned that you tried to, you know, kind of understand like the basic CS algorithms that would be required to implement this sort of thing out. So had you learned CS and artificial intelligence before? Was this something that um, you learned as you went? Yeah, it was something I really just learned as I went. I wasn't this like crazy coding genius when I was a kid. Um, so I think that's why preliminarily, like a lot of the algorithms I used were pretty basic. Um, I used like a basic backpropagation, machine learning algorithm, like something I found like open source online. Um, I used MATLAB, um, which a lot of CS people frown upon. Um, <laughs> but it, it was at the time, it was just something that was the easiest for me to like really delve myself into not having that much coding experience. Um, so yeah, it, it was something that I just like wanted to implement because I thought this idea was very cool. Very cool. I can just imagine sophomore Amber Yang just like leaning over the computer, researching all of these like AI things. That's so cool. <laughs> um, so you mentioned that you took this project and submitted it to Intel. What prize did you end up winning there? Yeah, I won one of the top three prizes overall. Um, so I competed in the physics and astronomy category and I won the best in category there. And then from all of the best in categories, I was like the top three, um, which was really nice. Um, got a lot of recognition from that. Got a pretty nice scholarship that helped with Stanford. So hmm, that's awesome. And so you're standing up there, you're, you've gotten this prize. What were your like first thoughts after coming home from that trip? Yeah. Um, before I went to Intel, I didn't really like have any expectations that I was going to like do super well. Um, so I, I think I had always just viewed this project as like, yeah, something that really gave me like a good outlook um, on like how to express my interests outside of classes in high school, especially since like high school is taught in such a static way. Mm. Um, but after I came back, I like got like a new like found wave of like inspiration to like make what I had been pursuing a reality. Um, and I, I feel like I've read like all too many like amazing science fair projects that just like never really come to fruition like after a person goes to college. So I didn't really want that to be me. And at that time I had decided to go to Stanford and um, people were asking me like after I had won, they were like, so what are you gonna do with this now? And I'm, I was like, I guess I'm gonna create a startup because I'm going <laughs> to Stanford and what else should I do? Um, but I wasn't, it wasn't like I was actually going to pursue it. I was just something for me to say at the time. And then um, I think a few VCs read, read the article that like said that I wanted to make a startup <laughs> out of this. And one in my first month at Stanford as a freshman, I had about like three different VCs hit me up and say, hey, we saw that like you're working on this cool pro project. Uh, we'd love to talk to you. And I was like, oh, okay, I guess this is something I'm going to do. Um, so I incorporated a company and it just sort of like happened from that. That's so crazy. I feel like, yeah, just like going into Stanford freshman year, like having actual VCs, like people that you'd heard of and think as like some sort of faraway entity instead of people that actually, you know, would reach out. Like that must have been such an interesting experience as an 18 year old. Yeah, very, very interesting for sure. Mm-hmm. In terms of incorporation, like I know, I know that involves, you know, legal documents, having maybe potentially a lawyer. 
uh, did those VCs help you out in like connecting you with Allure or did you find one yourself slash did you do it yourself? Mm. Yeah. So the first VC I talked to um, gave me the name of this lawyer and he said that he was, he was basically like the counsel for a lot of Stanford student startups. So I like met up with him. I really liked him. Um, at the time I was like, I knew like nothing. So I was like, sure, I'll, I'll go with him. Um, and especially because he offered like the deferred payment process. So he said that like, um, we won't charge you for any legal services now until after you've raised like above a certain amount of money. Um, so I was like, okay, I guess like if I'm, he's letting me incorporate for free now, this is what I'll do. So, uh, and I'm still with him today and have recommended him to a lot of other Stanford students. So. And you mentioned that, you know, you had developed a lot of those core AI algorithms in high school. When it came around to, you know, incorporation time, did you have to patent those things or did that come later? Yeah. So actually none of it is patented. Um, this is something that I was like going back and forth on a lot. Um, ultimately the advice I had gotten was that you don't really need to patent this because if you're not actually selling like your source code, um, it's not really like needed to do so. Um, especially since like, if you're just selling like the API or like selling a data processor, people can't actually get the core of like your algorithm. Um, and then we talked mm. a lot with like a few lawyers about, um, defensibility of the product and like realized that there was so many technical details that I didn't actually disclose to like any new source or any VC that it wouldn't be possible to create the exact algorithm. Um, so because of that, especially since patenting is very expensive, it takes a long time. Um, so we decided not to incorporate, uh, not to patent, sorry. Not to patent, yeah. No, that makes total sense. I feel like that's something that a lot of startup founders go through is like, should I patent it? Should I actually, you know, do it, but then it tends to be that like software is usually just kept proprietary or something, and then people don't actually go through the process. Yeah. Um, so I want to talk about something else. So I know we talked about this a little bit in our, you know, our meetup last time, but we talked about how there's like many different paths to founding a startup. You know, there's the path where you might be walking along in your typical day and just be inspired. There's the path where you you know, you're actively looking for a problem to solve in industry. Like, let's just say you're in some class like Startup Garage or Lean Launchpad, for example. And there's also the research path. Um, this is how it worked for you. Uh, so what would you say are your thoughts on those different paths and, and what you sort of prefer? Yeah, um, I've been thinking about this a lot. And I think the one path that I'll say that I have noticed that a lot of the startups that tend to form from this reason, uh, they often end up failing the most. And this is when someone is like, my life goal is to be an entrepreneur. So I'm going to sit down for a week and think of an idea. And that's what I'm going to pursue. Um, typically, they never really come to anything. Um, and I think that's because for anyone to like have to want to go through creating a company, it has to be something that like, first of all, is like very technically exciting. It doesn't have to be like, oh, a completely new algorithm, but it's either like a huge pain point in their own lives or something they've experienced or like something that they've devoted a long time researching towards um, that they are just passionate and want to see some type of future for this product. I think people 
get into entrepreneurship sometimes for the wrong reasons. It can seem very like sexy and appealing from the outside mm-hmm. um, when you're talking mm-hmm. about raising a large amount of money and like being in charge of yourself, in charge of your schedule. All of those things are like really, really ideal qualities of a startup. But what doesn't get noticed a lot is like how much like pain and hardship there is that goes that you go through, right? So mm-hmm. I think for someone to actually stick through the startup when there is so much pain and hardship, it has to be for some topic or pain point that they are really, really motivated and excited by. Mm. Yeah, no, that makes absolute sense. So you mentioned, you know, starting a startup, you go through a lot of, you know, challenges, you have to have a lot of grit. What would you say were some of the, you know, most difficult challenges that came up as you were starting this company? Mm. I think for me, this is something that like, I'm not sure if I'm the only person who's gone through this, but it sort of comes with like feeling a certain amount of legitimacy from what you're doing. So when I was first starting out, like I didn't really trust myself. I was like an 18 year old, didn't really have too much Mm -hmm. self-confidence. I'm like, who am I to be like telling these like huge space companies, like where to put their satellites? Like I didn't have enough trust in myself. And also when I was like raising money and talking to people, I always viewed it as like, oh, this is just like, this isn't as legit as it may appear seem to people so that was like a big internal struggle that I had to deal with throughout the years like coming across as like professional while like secretly like really doubting myself inside Mm. so I think it's this like vacillation between like um my own confidence level and what I'm doing um I think what else has been difficult is knowing when to take on more responsibility um so so much of a startup it's like obviously you want to like grow and with growth comes like raising money and hiring people. But all of those things, when you actually start to raise money and hire people, you realize that it's an immense responsibility. And when I first received my first amount of money that I raised, I felt excited, but I also felt incredibly anxious about not wanting to screw up, wanting to use the money responsibly. Um, So I think also like just calming down my anxiety and um, like learning how much responsibility is appropriate to take on at certain amounts of time. Mm. Yeah, that second point really like, I think hits close to home. Like I feel like, you know, once like an entrepreneur raises money, it's the the perception that the clock starts ticking. Um, So I guess like, did you have that perception in your own mind? And how did that affect your uh, ultimate approach to doing fundraising? Yeah. So I've really only fundraised once. Um, And when I did, I definitely felt that sensation that like, yes, the clock is ticking, um, especially since I raised in terms of a safe. So um, it was either like I had to return the money by a certain amount of time or else it would like convert to equity in my next round by a certain date, which was like two years from the day I, actually raised so for me it was like okay like I need to figure out what is my long-term plan for the company like if it's appropriate to raise more money then I have to like figure out my correct cap table and like how much equity that it's like appropriate and then second if I decide not to like continue this long term like exactly how do I deal with that with the investor 
and also like how do I allocate my money properly so that I still can like remain responsible so it was mm. very like it, it gave me a lot of pressure actually once I actually raised some money yeah so obviously you know you fundraise because you want to be spending money on this company whether it be hiring or something else um, was that your goal with a fundraising to be able to bring on more people onto the team yeah that was my goal to be able to pay people that I had brought on the team and also um, to buy like more licenses of software than I needed. Um, also at the time, like I thought that I might be needing to spend some money getting the data that I needed. Turns out I was able to get most of the stuff open source or through deals with companies. So um, yeah, mostly for hiring and for software purposes. Mm, gotcha. So what, at what point did you think like I should be bringing on more people onto the team? versus just like staying it alone? Yeah, I think, I think one thing that I've learned is that you really do need a team to build out a startup. Um, I never actually, when I started, like wanted to bring on a co-founder just because I had thought that I had done so much of the technical work myself. But then I also realized that when I was just working on it alone, it was extremely hard to keep myself accountable, especially as a student. Um, mm -hmm. so there would just be like times when I would like grind a bunch of stuff out for the company. And then like other times when I would just be like very minimal work. Um, so I felt that I wanted to bring someone on over the summer that I first decided to raise money. Um, first, because I thought I would have enough time to be able to be responsible for someone else. And second, because I realized that in order to actually see growth and progress, I needed to bring on people to keep me accountable. Mm. And what are those, you, I know, I remember you mentioned that it's two people, right? That you hired? Yeah. What do those two people do? Yeah. So one person is like a technical advisor for the company and is basically just overseeing like the vision of the company and also all of the algorithms that need to be developed in terms of a more theoretical perspective. And then the other person comes from a software background and is basically implementing those theoretical ideas in, in code. Mm, interesting. Got it. Something else I, I want to touch on before, you know, diving more into like the now and what you're up to today. Um, so you mentioned, you know, obviously being a student at Stanford, juggling, you know, 15 plus, sometimes 20 plus units, and then having to run this startup sort of on your own. What's it like juggling those two? And, and what was the toughest year for you? Um, I think juggling the two is something I would not recommend. <laughs> thinking um just because I think it's best to put all of your effort into one thing when you're doing it um school is really only four years it's not that long and I think you get a lot of fundamental ideas and knowledge from it that is really worth putting in your full time um so I've, I constantly experience like a push and pull between the two um yeah I think the hardest year for me was probably my sophomore year I did a startup accelerator that was based in Toronto. Um, Interesting. Yeah, it was specifically for space startups. It was called Creative Destruction Lab. And because of that, I would travel to Toronto once every like four weeks. And I did this all throughout sophomore year, which was very, very, very stressful in terms of yeah, coming back like day of having a midterm. Um, yeah. <laughs> wow, that's crazy. 
Uh, I want to touch real quick before our Founders Couch Fire Round today and what, what you're working on today. So obviously with the pandemic, there's, it's brought a lot of challenges to like startups and small businesses. So how would you say COVID has affected you and, and how does it affect the space industry if it does? Mm-hmm. Um, how it's affected me, I talked to you a little bit about this a few days ago, but I think it's really made me reevaluate my concept of risk. Um, I, I'd say naturally I'm a more risk adverse person, but I think because of the COVID situation, it's pretty much put everyone in the same boat where there's like so much uncertainty, so much new time to rethink your structure for life. Um, so I think that amount of like freedom has given me a bit more risk tolerance. So I've been like considering like if school does go remote in the fall that I will take next year off to work on the company. Um, I think because before when I was always evaluating like whether I should take time off to work on the company, it was always just like, no, I shouldn't because like my classmates and peers that I know are all going to be like working on their career. And if this doesn't work out, then it's like, I'm going to be behind. It was always this (laughs) big fear that I had, but now it's almost as if like everyone is doing that and pretty much no one can really be doing anything except working on like passion projects that they have. So it's given me more freedom, more creativity to be okay with things not being perfectly structured. And I think that's what's made me reevaluate this whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of the space industry, I actually don't think that COVID is going to be affecting space too, too much. Um, it is sort of out there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, it's definitely not affecting like the... The, like day-to-day like stock prices I guess of like SpaceX or like big space companies but I think more so if if there will be effects it will be because people will realize that like oh um, it's not an immediate necess- necessity so it's not something to like pour huge amounts of capital in when we should be investing that money into like biotech um, I think if any effect it will be because of that side effect mm. Yeah, that's definitely interesting to know. Okay, so now I want to move on to the Founders Couch Fire Round, which um, instead of, I think, eight to ten questions that I used to ask, I'm focusing on just five, and I'm just going to throw them real quick at you. So, number one, um, most memorable experience at Stanford so far? Yeah, I think for me, there's just too many of just, like, really late-night conversations where, like, you have that, like, sense of happiness when you feel like you finally like click with the person intellectually and like emotionally and mentally um so a lot of those I actually oh now I'm making this like a longer answer I'm sorry but it's totally (laughs) okay um one of my closest friends is working on a startup like on and off about um providing like home cleaning services like on demand and I remember like freshman year or something, he like asked me if I wanted to like help him out for like a pilot test for this. And we wanted to like understand the pain points better. So we both applied to like be maids for Molly Maid so that we could like understand what self cleaners were like going through. That's Um, so funny. (laughs) Just memories like that where it was like wanting to like feel like you understand like other people's struggles and like bonding with friends at Stanford over that. It's like taking user research to a whole nother level. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. All right, number two, favorite class at Stanford and why? Mm. Favorite class by far is Art History 1B. 
um, with Alex Nemirov really changed my life. I, I loved art before that. Like I can be content just going to like a modern art museum and just spending all day in there. But it was the first time that I was actually able to like evaluate it and be able to really understand what was like the meaning behind various pieces. Quarantine activity that keeps you sane. Mm. I think for me, I've been eating mango popsicles every <laughs> night after dinner. <laughs> and it's so sad, but it's definitely the happiest part of my day and what like gets me through the day because I just like think about the mango popsicle. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Oh my God. <laughs> for me, it's um, these chocolate almonds that my mom bought from the supermarket. Um, they're just so, I just look forward to them all day. So I get exactly how you're feeling. Number four, one word or phrase that embodies your startup journey? Volatile. We'll keep it at that. (laughs) And last question, where do you see seer tracking going and what are the next steps for Amber Yang? Yeah, for seer tracking, I think I'm pretty set on spending two years on it after graduation to see how things turn out, um, whether there is enough growth and whether it isn't like niche enough that I can actually see a bigger market for it. Um, So some ideas I've been toying with are converting it to a space insurance company where I'm actually providing insurance premiums for um, space companies. Um, I guess it it really depends on how the market shapes out and what the needs are by companies that I talk to. Um, What's next for me? Yeah, interesting question. Sort of a mess. Um, definitely, <laughs> seer tracking is still alive and well. Um, going to be pursuing it for the foreseeable future. There have been times where I've been considering about getting a PhD, um, getting going to grad school, most likely in CS. Um, trying to figure out a way to combine CS and physics, which is um, the two things that I've been studying at Stanford. Um, But also, I think at my core, I'm actually more of a humanities person than I am of a STEM person. Like, when I picture how I want to be spending my life in, like, 50 years, I always think about, like, writing. Um, And I I think I I can definitely see some type of humanities in my future at some point. Interesting. I like how there's, like, a little aura of mystery about what new novel you might come out with in 50 years. (laughs) Well, awesome. Um, This was so much fun, Amber. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you so much, Catherine. Really love this. Well, that was incredibly insightful. Thanks again to Amber for coming on the couch. I'm excited to see where she goes with seer tracking and potentially her new novel that might be coming out in 50 years. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode. If you have any feedback, suggestions, questions, or any existential thoughts, write to us at founderscouchpodcast at gmail.com. Wherever you're listening, please make sure to subscribe to Founders Couch for new episodes. And if you're all about that social media life, follow us on Instagram at Founders Couch. Friday after next, I'll be digging deep into another student founder's journey. Make sure to tune in May 29th for another Founders Couch Friday. I'm Catherine Jang, and you've been listening to The Founder's Couch. See y'all soon.